Hey, welcome to Ergo, WHPK, ErgoRadio.com. Uh, Damon's been running sprints while we've been getting set, but we're here, we're right on time, we're ready to go, showcasing strong young voices from Chicago and beyond. What you just heard bringing us in today uh, was Chuck English in honor of the fact that the cool kids are back together, That's Damon. That's what's up. That's what's up. I am, uh, first and foremost, out of breath. <laughs> We're happy to be alive and having breath in my body, but nah, that's that's raw though, cause like the cool kids was definitely my jam. Like that's when I started, like no pun intended, trying to become cool. It was like around junior year high school. They kind of low key started. Like everything. They kind of like were like the first little drop in the bucket of like what is now the Renaissance. They would be like kind of not what's happening right now. Chicago got the cool kids. So shout out Chuck. Shout out Mikey. Yeah, and uh, shout out to our very special guest who we will announce in a minute. But first some community announcements. Our first two off that, uh, if by community I mean us, then yeah, there are community announcements. One, <laughs> we're going on tour. Uh, this is very exciting. Um, we're gonna be hitting a bunch of colleges, bang, universities bang. all over the country, doing a talk about the show, some workshops on organizing a radio, and then a concert where we bring some Ergo alumni with us to perform. So this is where y'all come in. Um, if you know of a place that we should come that's gonna give us money to come there, uh, get at us, ergoradio.com, uh, ergoradio at gmail.com. Shout out to the money. And we will happily come take your university's money and say some stuff that you don't hear every day. Um, so we're very excited about that. The second thing, uh, we, we do want that cash a little bit more too, um, because, you know, we've been doing this 50, over a year. We're now in our second year of programming. Hey. Uh, hey. It's uh, a year ago, we were interviewing Rach Jackson right here on our second episode. Um, and we do take donations. So hit our PayPal, hit our Patreon on the website. That's all I got. Dame, you got? Also, uh, Super Kraken, Civil Room Black Party this Saturday. All the 53rd Street Corridor over in Hyde Park is going to be busting house music, all type of performance. Rick Wilson's performing. Via Rose is performing. I want to say L.A. Van Gogh. Highness is performing. Uh, a lot of air going along. Party Noir folks will be up there. It's going to be great. Uh, two other ones before Saturday. So tomorrow, uh, Asada's <laughs> Daughters is leading yeah. a march. Um Starting at 51st and King Drive at 5.30 uh, in honor and in memory of Philando Castile and Alton Sterling. So come through for that. Meet at 51st and King Drive Friday the 15th at 5.30. And the last one, uh, what I've been calling uh, our white people event. Uh, <laughs> next Tuesday or next Wednesday, pardon, the 20th at uh, Young Chicago Authors. Uh, showing up for Racial Justice, Let Us Breathe, and YCA have partnered for uh, Ally is a Verb. It's kind of an intro conversation and workshop around what people like me should be doing and thinking and talking about uh, and how we find our role in the movement. So come through for that. Attendance is going to be very limited because we got tons of white folks willing to show up apparently. Um, so come <laughs> early. Uh, funny how that works, huh? Mm -hmm. But uh, show up early, be there. It's going to be a great, hopefully the beginning of an ongoing series of conversations. Word. I was trying to think a joke of a joke about white people, but I'm out of breath. So I'm like- White people be like- <laughs> All right, let's get to it. So today we have a special guest. Why don't you have an intro kiss actually? So um, we spent a lot of time talking with poets and writers of different kinds up here. And for once, it's like kind of nice to have complete sentences uh, up here, which is really pleasant. And they happen to be beautiful sentences. Um, I'm very excited to have the writer, uh, the Chicagoan, uh, Jasmine Sanders here. How are you feeling, Jasmine? Good. Ba -ba -ba. I love the poetry yeah. shade. Like, I always <laughs> talk about poets. Yeah. Like, I've been oh, around way too many poets in the last five yeah. years. By far. Mm. How are you feeling today? How is the world treating you? How are you treating it? 
I'm great. I don't have any complaints today. Wow, none? Jeez. You came to the wrong place. We have we got complaints on deck always. I do, but none that are worth, like, you know. Giving like, the time and yeah, energy. Yeah, none that are worth, like, talking about or giving energy to. We're, so I want to kind of start uh, at the first piece that I read by you. Um, cool. And I like I like pulled quotes and stuff. I got all scholarly for this <gasps> one. So I'm gonna read something or you I mean, yeah, I'm gonna read it, even cool. though you wrote it. Um so just pretend that I'm you listeners. Okay. Uh <laughs> so the piece it's from May 2016 and it ends with I've dedicated my life and art to the people I love, those furthest in the margins and most at risk. I amplify our voices as much as I can, never to speak for us, but always speaking to us. I hope that my writing or my art or just my existence as a poor black girl from the south side of Chicago can make someone else's life more possible while knowing that the only life I can save is my own. Um, first off, bars. Yay. That's great. Thank Se- you. Second of all, it's kind of like a, it feels a bit like a mission statement of mm-hmm. sorts. Um, before this, like, what role did you think of your writing serving? Uh, and what were, were there like, mission statements of sorts that you had before that thinking about your writing or your work that now you see as not really fitting yeah i think i mean we talked about this a little bit before i'm a really really new writer so i've only been writing for almost a year now so Mm -hmm. i took my first writing class in fall 2015 and i actually always or from that point i thought of myself as a fiction writer Mm -hmm. and it just wasn't gelling like my fiction just wasn't strong it wasn't dynamic it wasn't impressive so I was like okay maybe I need to I thought I could sort of dip into nonfiction as a means of strengthening my voice mm. so it had never occurred to me that I was going to be or that I had interest in nonfiction writing I, I definitely want to kind of go down that path into your entry point because I think writing uh, more than most art forms requires a certain amount of courage, right? Mm-hmm. Like even more than, than writing things that rhyme, right? Like like writing just your thought straightforward mm-hmm. um, is a really brave act. So I want to talk a little bit about since since you are still like new in this identity yeah. uh, that work. But before I kind of want to stick to something I, I heard from the quote. Sure. Uh, let's talk about more about making life possible. What, what does it right. mean for, for life to be possible? Um, and if that is something that we have to actively do, right? What What is kind of... Uh, I don't want to say the opposite or, or what, what what is then happening? Are we, is life not possible? Or, or I just want to kind of dig deeper into that thought because that stuck with me. For sure. Um, it, the, that essay was written in the vein of me being really introspective about what activism would look like for me. So I mm. completed a year of service with AmeriCorps True. and actually public allies in Chicago. Okay. And that was sort of what, um, it was around the time that Trayvon Martin was killed, or it was the time that Trayvon Martin was killed, like the summer after um, George Zimmerman's verdict. And it really galvanized me. And I just wanted to be of service. I wanted to be of use to my community. And I feel like some of it was taught to me, but also a great deal of it was self-imposed. This idea that an activist is someone who goes to every single march and keeps abreast of every death and looks at all of the videos. And that's just not something that was sustainable to me. It's so emotionally and mentally taxing. Like, I remember being depressed over Trayvon Martin because I just was I didn't protect myself in any way from the really, really gruesome aspects of that mm-hmm. case. Like I listened to the 911 
video of he and George Zimmerman fighting and like where you heard the gunshot. And I looked at the pictures of his body laying in the lawn and that was just too much. And so that piece was written sort of in the vein of me understanding that me being an activist or me being of service doesn't have to look like self-sacrifice. It doesn't have to look like martyrdom or sort of putting my body and my mental health on the line or in harm's way. And so and so from that I'm hearing uh life being possible means like making the space for you to be able to like live with your, yes. your fullest light. Yes. Life being possible to me means that um my mental health mm-hmm. is taken care of. So I'm sort of checking in with myself and protecting myself in the ways that I know how. And then when I'm at my best, like when I'm taken care of, I can be, I can reflect that onto other people and I can worry about other people. Yeah. I mean, I think that that, uh, not dichotomy, but that step-by-step makes a lot mm-hmm. of sense to me. And it's, and we actually kind of talked about it a little bit yet, uh, last week on the show. Yeah. Um, but you say checking in with yourself mm-hmm. in the ways that you know how. Yes. Um, I think I, I personally spend a lot of time trying to build those ways of checking in for you. What do those things look like and how did you learn them? For me, it looks like, um, so I do have, like, I'm actually diagnosed with depression. Mm. So I take medication for that every day. And so checking in with myself looks like making sure that I've done that and making sure that I've eaten and I've had enough water and just very base level things and sort of building up from there. So um, have I talked to the people who make me feel better and Mm. make me feel like anything or make me help me be a person in the world so that's kind of what i think of it as like step by step how i can be a person in the world is first i have to deal with my mental health and then i can deal with the people i love and so on and so forth if that makes sense that makes perfect sense we we don't wherever we get to a point that you don't want to go in this feel free to go back but um like what are the we've we've kind of in certain ways on the show we haven't dug into mental health. We've talked mm-hmm. about it in different ways. Do you feel like the conversation right now that you're hearing around like how activism and mental health work together and how people can be supported as they take on these challenges, whether it's being in the street or writing or creating art, mm-hmm. um, do you feel like the understanding of what how depression works in that is accurate, inaccurate, a little bit of both? Like, are people using the word depression wrong, basically? Um, I can't, I don't think I can speak for everybody, mm-hmm. but I do think that I've heard people use the word depression wrong. I feel like if you tell people I am depressed, which is um, kind of going to lead into like a conscious decision I've made, as opposed to telling people I'm depressed, I say that I have depression. Like, mm-hmm. it's an actual disease. It's an affliction. Right. It's something that interrupts my life and right. can ruin it has ruined my life before and threatened it. So I think that I don't like the way that a lot of people talk about depression because it's kind of with the understanding that, well, you're depressed right now because of this. Yeah. So if you're depressed, why don't you stop whatever's making you depressed? Why don't right. you eat you know what I mean? Right. Like why don't you exercise? And it's why like Why don't you pray? Yeah. Like no, that's yeah. not how it works yeah. sometimes. So that frustrates me, like, yeah, unbelievably. So, Dame, what kind of conversation, just because I'm not in those rooms for a lot of reasons, what kind of conversations around that stuff do you have when you're thinking about, like, 
how do you connect with folks who are not already basically like we're talking about how do you bring folks into the movement right mm -hmm. and we know that there is trauma and we use that as kind of this catch-all term right like how do you think about as organizers bridging that gap and bringing people in while recognizing like we don't necessarily have a complex understanding of what uh, all these different aspects of mental health, whether it's depression or anxiety or PTSD, whatever. Or even look like. like the aspect of it that's intergenerational for is sure. something that as black people and specifically like as a black woman, I feel like people kind of feel like it's junk science a little mm. bit. Or I remember um, a huge turning point for me, which was something that I touched on in an essay that I wrote for Catapult. Was, Which is really good. I've read them all, by the way. The ones yay, I could find. Thank you're, you're, so I much. I like your writing. Thank you. Um, there was a writer who was talking about, um, she paralleled it to monarch butterflies. And so mm. monarch butterflies every year, they're actually endangered now. Like um, global warming is killing them. But anyways, <laughs> every <laughs> we'll year. Well, just gloss over right, the fact that the world right, is water. On a brighter year. note. <laughs> right. Every year they make this journey. So every monarch butterfly makes this journey to wherever, where they're going to mate and have babies. And they make it without having ever done it before. And so how do they know how to get there sort of mm -hmm. instinctively? How does a monarch butterfly know how to cross the ocean, when to do it, how to get where they're supposed to be yeah. without having ever made that trek before? And it's because there's something in them a sort of an intergenerational memory yeah. that they have that my parents made this, my grandparents made this. And so it's almost like a footprint that's on mm. their mind, that's in their memory. So a memory of things that they haven't gone through. Right. And Whether so, those are like uh, warm commute, like traditions, biological yeah. patterns or trauma. In this right. So that's that was a huge turning point for me was thinking of trauma as something that's as intergenerational as your eye color or mm. anything else that you inherit from your parents. Right. And so like, like for me, that's something I think about all the time and how mm -hmm. overlooked that is. Like it, it literally gets wired into your DNA. Yeah. So when you think about like the last seven generations or so, yeah. of like what's been happening uh, to specifically black people in America. And then mm -hmm. you, you get um, kind of like these wild obtuse, uh, like reports on the violence that happens in Chicago and totally mm -hmm. disconnecting it um, from the, that trauma that we're talking about that has been built up for for a millennium, you know? Yeah. Uh, that, that's how we get like the, the situation that we're in, right? That's how mm -hmm. we get policies that say, well, then we need so many police to handle yeah. all this violence because we don't yeah. understand the, the true human root of it. Um, yeah. and, and so in, in your writing, do you find... Um, that that you are, are 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 making space for for that analysis to go deeper, like past the point of policy, past just the point of pain, uh, but but even maybe it's, it's not in things you've published, but just as you are developing as a writer, and I hear you talk about um, this idea of living to the fullest, this idea of self care and mental health. Are you finding mm -hmm. being able to make those kind of uh, cracks in the concrete of of our conscious understanding of how like mental health on a social like like societal level is causing this moment that is so like hyper violent? Yeah, I think that it's something I think about a lot. I think that we've never dealt with our traumas as mm. black people in any way. So um, a, something I'm doing now is like family research and genealogy. Mm. And I was talking to a great aunt of mine about my great-great-grandmother. 
And so I was Shout asking out to great great grandma for sure. <laughs> Shout out Dora. Hey. <laughs> um, Squad. Yeah, I was asking her about my great great grandmother, and I'd asked several people about her at that point, and they'd all said the same thing: like she was so mean, and she just didn't. She didn't take anything from anybody. She was such a mean woman. And so I went into this idea of trying to get to know her with that understanding. Mm. And so sort of piecing together bits and pieces of her life, she was a woman who um, in 1901, her mother married, her mother remarried. So she had a stepfather in 1901. She was 14. And then in 1902, she was actually pregnant by that man, like that man got her pregnant mm-hmm. and she wound up having his son. And so, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Things like that, like mm-hmm. something that's so complex and so painful and so traumatic as this 14-year-old girl that's having the child oh, of, yeah. right, gets collapsed and simplified into she was mean or she was angry. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of how I think of it is it's just such a huge oversimplification of our grief and our traumas. In doing that research and in doing that thinking, uh, Specifically with your family, like mm-hmm. have you found things in addition to that that were that have been super surprising or like have changed the way you think about, uh, you know, the, your family gives you a certain narrative of how y'all got where For you sure. are. What have you found that's been surprising? Surprising to me was I've always thought of myself, I mean, probably as all black Chicagoans, like really close to the South, right? Mm-hmm. Like our grandparents came up here during the Great Migration. So I wouldn't call myself a Southerner, but the South has always been really close to me. And the state that I most closely identify with was Arkansas because like my grandmother's from there, great, great grandmother, all of these people. And so it was surprising to me to learn that those are the only three generations of my family that were there. Before mm-hmm. that, we were actually in Tennessee. Mm-hmm. So we came from Tennessee to Arkansas salt to chicago so right so it's not like that's the place that we all like we think yeah. about where you come from it's like well yeah and yeah it's sort of about the mutability of home to me mm. you know what i mean it's something that for black people it changes so much so now i'm questioning my connections to arkansas like right. this place that i had this huge emotional and psychic yeah. sort of sentimentality for so i want to talk about home uh yeah. and the, another piece you wrote uh but let's let's hear a song first. This is off of, uh, and we'll give Damon a chance to fully catch his breath. This is off <laughs> Ergo alum uh, Jamila Woods' new project. Uh, it's called Holy. It's really, really, really good. Uh, I think so, at least. Yeah. You're listening <laughs> to Ergo. You have it in your opinion, man. Just, just stand up. <laughs> it's good, damn it. Ergo, W-H-P-K. Give me today my daily bread. Help me to walk alone ahead Though I walk through the darkest valley I will fear no love Oh my smile, my mind reassure me I don't need no one Woke up this morning with my mind Set on loving me With my mind Set on loving me Woke up this morning with my mind may come, the lover may leave, the winter may not. 
Hey, the map of your palms, the tempo you be, you're all that you got. Hey, the bad days may come, the lover may leave, the winter may not. Hey, the map of your palms, the tempo you be, you're all that you got. Though I walk through the darkest valley, I will feel no love. Oh, my smile, my mind, reassure me. Holy featuring Donnie Trumpet off of her new project, Heaven. Dropped last week. Go get that. Um, well, you better go listen to Jamila else you were lame on my mom. <laughs> oh, my God. Now you have, uh, yeah, now you got it. You have no choice now. Um, there was like on uh, on Twitter, you said you were going to listen. Uh, you told people to listen to the podcast if they want. And I said, no, you should listen even if you don't want. Yeah, mm-hmm. you have no option. Yeah, no, we've, mm-hmm. we've dropped the gauntlet on this. We were just talking actually because, you know, Donnie's on this and talking about the Ali tribute that uh, the Chance did last night at the ESPYs. Yeah. I thought it was really beautiful. If you haven't seen it yet, go take a look and uh, we'll have a more informed conversation yeah, about it maybe I, next I, week. I missed, I missed that joint, but shout out to Chicago. Or so we were getting, Speaking of shout out to Chicago, uh, we we're talking about home and ideas of mm-hmm. home and how that changes. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the second thing I read by you is this beautiful piece that you wrote for BuzzFeed, uh, specifically centering on i'd say on that on, on conceptions of home you want to talk a little bit about like what that piece is and uh how it came to be sure um so it's i believe the name is um home is a place that i can't return to or home is a place that doesn't exist for me anymore yeah, it's, it's, so it's based on this idea that i was raised in the robert taylor homes which are um, a part of the state street corridor on 43rd and state mm-hmm. um just a huge sort of group of public housing. Mm -hmm. So I grew up there and I didn't, I didn't grow up with the idea that being a person who was poor or a person who lived in this neighborhood was automatically negative or unfortunate until Mm -hmm. I got older and that idea was introduced to me by other people. How was that idea introduced, if you remember? Sure. I think the first time was um, the situation I described in the essay, which was I went to Washington Park summer camp 
And it was like the end of the summer and I saw one of my campmates and we'd gotten on the bus together, I believe at 35th. And then when she saw me getting off at 43rd, she was like, you live in the projects? And I was like, uh, yeah. <laughs> like that was the first time I'd heard or thought of, or I guess that was my introduction to the idea that home was somewhere I should be ashamed of. Mm. Because I thought, and I still say this now, that was such a formative experience for me like I lived there till I was like 14 and I thought the projects were a great deal of fun like the uh, best years of my life I think Mm. so I don't think that it's I think that it's always pathologized in a way that I don't understand or really like yeah and you described in the piece talking about like um like how it shaped your conceptions of let's say uh beauty or conceptions Mm -hmm. of like Basically, you were able to a certain age to operate outside of like uh, enforced white standards of of beauty or access or all those things because that just wasn't the world you lived in. It wasn't at all. I didn't have white friends until maybe sophomore year of high school Mm. because I just grew up in a community that was all black and not only all black, but specifically like black American people who had came here from the South. And the majority of us were raised by our grandmothers as well. And yeah, I just grew up sort of protected from whiteness in a way. Like all of my favorite movies, all of my favorite artists were black people. It had never, I didn't, I wasn't introduced to whiteness specifically as the standard or as, yeah, I wasn't introduced to that idea until I was way older. It's it's, it's really interesting to hear you say protected from whiteness because because I'm, I'm hearing yeah. that like in a cultural and, and like social standpoint mm-hmm. because when you think about like economically and politically like that position mm-hmm. uh is like the most targeted or the most vulnerable to like whiteness on like a a political scale right mm-hmm. of like the fact that the projects were designed as a place to like mm-hmm. um entrap poverty so so ha- yeah that that's like a really interesting dichotomy that i mm-hmm. wonder it, when you start to wrestle with that point that even though i wasn't engaging whiteness in the individual like dealing with white people right like whiteness is what yeah. has created my entire surroundings and yeah for sure and i don't i'm not saying that just because we were protected from whiteness. There weren't other issues like Mm -hmm. colorism is a huge thing. I talk about colorism and skin color a lot because it was sort of one of the first otherisms. Mm -hmm. I know that's not a word, but it was, it's a word now. Yeah. (laughs) Or gender was the first thing that I was ever made aware of being all of us were black, but I noticed really, really early on that black boys were treated way differently than I was, or Mm -hmm. they had opportunities that I didn't. And it just made me, that was sort of my first bitterness was yeah. about gender and reconciling. So you, you mentioned your grandma. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, We've done this a couple of times when people have like family members that come up a few times, but just yeah. tell us a little bit about your grandma. My grandmother, uh, her name was Lucille. She was born Lucille Bones in... Lucille, that is a name. Yeah, that is. sounds like a, it's a, a graphic a novel name. protagonist. That's <laughs> my favorite name. She was born Lucille Bones in Holly Grove, Arkansas. And um, she got married to what I'm assuming was the love of her life when she was 16. And in about 1950, I believe she came to Chicago from Arkansas and um, made a life here. So she had nine kids and all of her kids had a bunch of kids. And yeah, so that's who raised me. 
but more than just like her her biography like when, when you think of of grandma like what type of what type of person was she what, how was y'all dynamic how was your relationship um so i was actually raised by my grandmother mm-hmm. so my relationship to her i think um she died when i was 18 so one of I mean, I guess it's not maybe, well, I would call it a regret because she died when I was too young to sort of have appreciation for her as a person. Mm. You know what I mean? Like I thought of her in relation to me only. She was my grandmother. Right. I hate that I never got to talk to her about her life. Mm. And, but our dynamic was what I think most girls is with their mothers, like sort of that really antagonistic in a way, but also really loving and supportive. So, yeah. Uh, Do you feel like the, you mentioned a lot of the research work you've been doing into Mm -hmm. family history. Has that been in some ways a response to that regret of like, who is this as a person? Because I know for, so my, my grandpa, the one who's still around uh, Mm -hmm. is, you know, he's an old man now and is dealing with health stuff. That's just from being old. Mm -hmm. And I definitely felt that impulse of like, oh shoot, I don't really know who this person is who right. I love more than pretty much anybody else in the right. world, you know? Mm-hmm. Do you feel like you've kind of bridged that gap through some of the the writing stuff or does that at least help and start that process? It definitely helped. Like I was sort of for months, I was looking for my grandmother's marriage certificate and I just couldn't find it. And it's not that old. Like she got married in 1947, which isn't, I mean, it's a long time ago, but it shouldn't be beyond the scope of mm-hmm. finding a document as it was just really, really hard for me to track this down. And so I finally found it. And it was so hard because her name is spelled wrong. So (laughs) the court documents spelled her name wrong. Um, I'm guessing they probably went by what they heard and they spelled her name wrong as well as the name of her husband. What did they spell it as? Her name is Lucille and they spell it as Lou, L-O-U-E, Seal, (laughs) S-E-A-L. Like Lou. That's just not a name. That's almost intentional. Yeah, Lucille. So, (laughs) yeah. They they had a kindergarten or stenographer, correct? Basically. (laughs) So um, that was huge for me because sort of imagining this woman, well, this girl who was 16 and from Arkansas, and her mom would have passed at that time, and marrying this man who I want to believe she loved so much because they got married at 16 and 17. And then to have on the day that was supposed to be the happiest day of your life, they spelled your name wrong. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like, yeah. yeah. Um, so let, let's, I, I want to go a little bit back um, or I guess it forward in the timeline back in the conversation. Sure. Um, let's say whether it's in your grandma's apartment or just like around mm-hmm. the Robert Taylor homes, like what are the smells? What are the sights? What are the sounds that when you think of are like, let's say eight-year-old Jasmine? Sounds, I would say I have a really, um, really sort of sharp memory of those bucket boys, mm-hmm. like boys who were, beating mop buckets because they didn't have like we didn't have a real music program and they didn't have drums or real instruments and so they made one yeah Yeah. and so it's kind of that's so sad that we don't have the means to provide kids with music instruments and music education but then look at what they came up with like look at what they improvised and so that to me is sort of what growing up in robert taylor that that encompasses the entire experience like Mm it's poor and it's sad and it's this really destitute area, but there's light and joy here as well. So that would be the sound. 
Um, also, the sound of me constantly asking for money to go to the candy store <laughs> on the fifth floor. Um, the candy store was on the fifth floor? Yes. there was. <laughs> we lived in 701, and there was a candy store, like, right directly beneath us in Man. 501. So this is important journalism. Like, what were your... Mm-hmm. <laughs> What were your candy store staples? This is hard My so candy store. Are you, I mean, a non-related no. type of girl? What, what, no, the candy less... stores didn't have non-related. Oh, uh, okay. Let's we talk had there. icy cups. True. I don't know if you know what those yeah, are. Yeah, yeah. I still don't know what an icy cup is. It's just, it's I don't like, know if it's It's Kool-Aid. crushed ice and like no, yeah, it's colored Icy cups, syrup. Blue, blue, basically. It's just have... high fructose corn syrup. Um, it's blue flavored. Yeah. Reba Flavin. Um, <laughs> icy cups, Hinson, Doritos Reba with cheese. Um, fruit roll-ups, like mm-hmm. fruit by the foot, yeah. cherry, nice, um, and a dill pickle. That's what. You and were. I feel like I could get all of that for like two dollars. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's like in a candy. The pickle store, is actually an underrated, uh, underrated choice. I, I'm, I want to commend you on a on, dill on the pickle. pickle. Yeah. So yeah. as an outsider to the city, one of the thing, one of the first things that I learned as very important to understanding Chicago is uh, pickles and peppermint sticks as a combination. I was never. My mom used to say she used to do the peppermint thing. That's yeah, weird I feel like to me. that was the generation. People, yeah, that sounds like some. Yeah, 80s, like we were like, on the tail end of that, and we like there's no need for a peppermint. There would be hot pickles though. Those yes, things start to come. Yes, out. the hot pickles, and it was like that huge jar that I'm sure they got from like Family Dollar or something, like that big jar of pickles. I think just culturally in general, we need to appreciate the pickle more. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, I think we're modeling that here right now on yeah, Ergo sure. Radio and yeah. WHBK Be the change you want to see in the world is what you're saying. <laughs> mm-hmm. right. So, so I, I want to talk because um, I, I really love to hear you um, humanize and, and, and talk about public housing sure. uh, from a personal standpoint. But I want to talk about some of your transition out because uh, mm-hmm. I think like on a on a mass structural level, like outside of just Chicago. Um, the destruction of like public, I mean, the, the the construction of public housing was really bogus and really messed up and has a it has a terrible history um, mm-hmm. in terms of like the limitations it created. But then the destruction of public housing, I think we are living yeah. with the effects that are so much greater. And mm-hmm. it doesn't get mentioned in context with the then like Never. subsequent housing crisis. It doesn't really get mentioned uh, with the violence that we're seeing in the city communities. Sure. It doesn't really get mentioned uh, with like de- deindustrialization and the loss of like you know, working manufacturing jobs. Um, mm-hmm. And so I, I would love to to hear when your transition out was in, in relationship to when the, the, the ending of like public house or the idea of the projects of an era. Yeah, I have. So I have like a really, I have like the best memory in the world. Like I remember everything except names. Like I can't remember names. Oh my God. But, um, oh my God. I just uh, figured out this guy's name like yeah. two weeks ago. He's, <laughs> he's been, uh, he's been, he keeps calling me Damon by accident. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Yeah, you know, Damon and Daniel. Yeah. <laughs> okay. But, um, so I remember being really young and there being like a news blurb like um, about public housing destruction in another state. And I remember asking my grandmother, like, what are we going to do if they destroy the projects? And she was like, oh, that'll never happen. Like, that's mm. not that's not something that's going to happen. Mm. There's too many people here. Mm. So wow. fast forward. Yeah. And yeah. I remember it being kind of just really inhumane. Literally, it was like, so we lived in the building 4352. So the way that they did it was they would empty building by building. So obviously that creates issues because you have this building that's 16 stories high, 10 
built 10 apartments on each floor and there's four or five families in here eventually, like as it gets emptier and emptier. So um, our building was one of the first that I remember being emptied. And yeah, just like, I remember the building constantly just falling into disrepair. Like the elevator stopped working. There were so many vacant apartments and vacant areas that it was just an issue getting in and out of the building at one point. Yeah. So we moved from that building to another building and we saw that building like being destroyed. And then when I was 14, sort of the same thing started happening to the building that we moved into, which was 4444. So the same thing, like gradually emptying it. And we moved to 40th and Ellis. Um, And so, yeah, it was just a really inhumane thing. I think that when it was decided that public housing would be demolished, no one ever thought like these are people that have connections to this place mm-hmm. and that have emotional bonds and and our generations deep in here at this yeah point, like you know? my grandmother my mother me you know what i mean right. and then my sister had had a baby by right. then so four generations yeah for sure so i just remember it being chaos and not really not wanting to move at all like i didn't want to move at all and so you were about 14, 15? Yeah, it was eighth grade was when um, we moved out of Robert Taylor, like, completely. Man, so I'm thinking about that, like, you that like that staying one step ahead, right? Like, you leave a building and then you turn around. It, it, like, this is a little dramatic, but you turn around to look and then it's not there anymore. Mm-hmm. And you, then you move yeah. again and it's not there anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm thinking about, like, yeah. what that means in terms of uh, just as, like, a relationship to permanence and the city. Like... So it's a very different context. But for mm-hmm. me, like, I hate going through bridges, over bridges. I hate going through tunnels, big infrastructure projects, because when I was nine, I watched the two biggest buildings in the city I grew up in collapse. So I think mm-hmm. on some level that nothing can stand the world. Like, no matter how permanent, no matter how safe it looks, no matter how well built it is, it, it's going to come down eventually. Yeah. Um, so that relationship for me like shows up from that early trauma mm-hmm. um, for you. Like, do you think it shapes one, how you view uh, the city and then also like how you think about the way that your words can remain permanent? Yeah, it definitely shapes the way that I view the city because whenever I go past 43rd and state now, um, like on the state street bus, or I think you can see it from the green line also, it's just like, it doesn't look right. Like it, mm-hmm. it that doesn't belong there. That's not what I see. You know what I yeah. mean? Like those sort of row houses and the neighborhoods like mixed income now. Yeah. And it just doesn't feel right to me. It's very jarring for me to see 43rd and State Street as it is now and to see like my old grammar school is not. It's still there, but it's being, I believe it's going to be a charter school. Like the <laughs> signs out front now. Funny how so, that works, huh? Yeah, it is. Yeah. And um, I think watching i finally watched chirac and mm-hmm. i think that yeah <laughs> yeah i, I think God that so now we know what the next 20 minutes will be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. i still haven't seen it Me neither. yeah but one of the really fundamental things he gets wrong is he doesn't understand 
Chicago gentrification. Like he doesn't understand. He sort of parallels the Chicago model of gentrification to a New York City model, which is right. Yeah. So like you see one person, white person a day, and then you see three white people. And then now there's more white people than black people and we get pushed out. And it's like, that's not how gentrification works in Chicago. It's the city's so segregated. There's pockets of black people Mm -hmm. and poor people. And those people get displaced as Mm -hmm. we were. And then once the area is redeveloped and money is invested, then it's re it's made it mixed income housing, mm-hmm. or then mm-hmm. you start to see white people. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? And so. also, I think uh, Chicago is is still so racially segregated. Yeah. yeah, that that the gentrification works differently, and that there is we'll push out brown folks, but yeah. we're still like Ooh. yeah, and there and there's black gentrification in Chicago. Yeah, that's not as there's black gentrification. So it doesn't look. The way of like, oh, now there's just a hipster here with like yoga yeah. pants. Like, I that's think that may be how it works for Latino neighborhoods. Yeah, you know what I mean? Like, like I Pilsen feel like, yeah, like Pilsen, bit. Humboldt Park, Logan Square. Those are the kind of sort of the trickling in of the white folks. Yeah, but, but ain't no yoga studios. No, in there's Wood. no yoga. Or, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, like South you Shore. see them in commute walking yeah. very briskly to wherever they're going. <laughs> they pretty much stay right here at High Park. That's right. Pretty much all they right. All they, they stay in High Park. The furthest you see them is the Green Line. But that that idea of like developers using black gender black gentrification as a tool is yeah i don't i just don't know how that works in other places but it seems like here because this is a place that folks uh like black folks move to mm-hmm. it's a hub for that uh like the, i could see developer whether it's as like intentional and nefarious as this sounds being like ooh there's our there's our ticket in uh, mm-hmm. you think it or you think it kind no, of no i've actually like, talked to i don't think it was a robert Taylor, it was the I actually talked to to one of the Cabrini people Green. who is redeveloping. It actually might have been, no, maybe with the Ickies. I, I can't remember which which housing, but he basically framed it um, as gentrification is good and that that's what the community wants and they want a new community center and they mm. want, uh, you know, higher income people bring, you know, Mariano's and Whole Foods and, yeah. you know, uh, a better park and all that. So, so the, it's literally yeah. like a, a, a com- the class consciousness is so disconnected um, mm-hmm. that people that we as a society don't understand what we do to the most marginalized and most underprivileged, and we often justify it, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not nefarious, like oh, I'm gonna like ah, <laughs> I got them. It's like oh, I'm about to make my money, and ba- a lot of other people are gonna make money, and that is inherently good. Right. Um, and right. we are actually cleaning up the bad that is here, right. and that is so decrepit in like a really perverse way. Yeah, I don't necessarily think the tenets of gentrification are inherently bad. You know what I mean? The idea of bringing resources to a neighborhood or diversifying income levels. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't think those are bad ideas, but it's just the way that it's implemented either in Chicago and other areas. It's just not. There's no like analysis of power, right? There's no like of how this will benefit and suffer and some people will suffer from it. For sure. If you want to, this is a a podcast plug that we do not get paid for, but I want to do it anyway. Uh, if you're curious, we to, don't get paid for anything. You don't have to. <laughs> you don't have to make that clarification. <laughs> don't worry. This y'all. is an unpaid thing. This is all from the heart. Right. <laughs> so you know, I really mean it. Uh, WNYC in New York did this amazing eight episode series called "There Goes the Neighborhood." Um, you know, it, there are pieces that are missing of it, but it's one of the most comprehensive uh, and relatively honest. Uh, discussions and diggings into 
how gentrification has worked in New York and what that means now. Mm. Uh, so I strongly recommend going and listening to that. I had like a weekend where I was driving artists around for this festival all weekend and I was in the car the whole time. And all I did was listen to this. So I got through it in a weekend, but it, they're only like a half cool. hour long. Damon, you might actually uh, enjoy it. I don't listen to podcasts, man. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't even listen to this one. Um, but I kind of want to transition out of, out of home life a little bit. Cool. And, and as we are like, you know, going on your journey of, of what built you as a writer, I want to talk about like education um, and like what school life was like uh, cool. and like where'd you go to high school in the city and, and, and how did that journey lead you towards picking up the pen as an instrument? Cool. Uh, or the laptop, whatever. <laughs> the quill. quill. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I went to McCorkle Public School, which was um, sort of like directly across the street from us. So I went to school with people who lived in the buildings with me mm -hmm. and it had never. But I was always like a gifted mm -hmm, student. Mm -hmm, you know quote. what I mean? Like I yeah. always got really, really high test scores and I was like, Recruited for a couple of other schools like Beasley and another private school that I was just like, nah. You know the, but, you know yeah. the Gerard Carmichael bit where he goes, you don't know how many times teachers have come up to me in class and whispered, you're not like the other ones. Yeah, yeah, for real. And I grew up with that. Like I yeah. grew up sort of, I had internalized that idea of, and I feel like it's especially amongst all black classrooms and, or mm -hmm. academic environments, mm -hmm. there's always this distinction of you know what I mean like um there's no racial discrimination but it shows up in other ways like gender skin color mm -hmm. academic performances mm -hmm. so yeah I went to McCorkle Elementary School and then I um so around that time we moved out of the Robert Taylor homes and I went to King so King College Prep which was like new King not old King like mm -hmm. they had re um imagine the school as a magnet school. Mm -hmm. So we were actually their second graduating class, class of 08. And I hated King so much. Wow. Well, King was full of, and again, I had grown up in this really monolithic environment and my friends were friends that I'd had since kindergarten and preschool right. mm -hmm. and people who were from the exact same background as me. So there was no self-consciousness about. Oh yeah. It's, yeah, it's some bougie moms. It's some bougie moms. Yeah, King that was like King. all <laughs> of the like light-skinned bougie yeah, yeah. kids. Like yeah, that, that King kid. Like the black gentrifiers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those Jack and Jill. Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> it was like all of these either mixed race black or just yellow, black, light-skinned people. Right, so you talked about colorism earlier. I want to, like, since that became oh, a central God. piece of it, yes, like, colorism. how are you now thinking about that distinction? And and, and how that, like, what, first of all, when did you start thinking about, like, colorism as being so interconnected to how you think about that stuff? And then, like, now when you look at those categories and the way that that influences how you think of high school, like, what does it mean to you now to be like those, you know? Yeah, for sure. I think that um, I've always thought about colorism because mine is a family where I'm not among the darker people, but there's like a, a large light skin section of my mm. family. Like there's a, there's a, a quite few of them are quite mm. yellow. Mm. And so I always thought like that can't have been accidental Right. Like if my grandmother had nine kids and the majority of them are rather light, like the majority of them have certain features or look a certain way. And then the next generation, the same thing that can't have been a coincidence to me. Like it had to have been. And I'm not saying that it's 
not understandable because, you know, I've never been a black woman in 1947 in Chicago or Arkansas. So maybe it was something that she did because she felt she had to. And I don't even, again, this is all like my own speculation, mm. but I've just always been really conscious of color and how it operated in my family and how people who were seen as beautiful, which is socially constructed and color play, color, hair, things like that mm -hmm. play a huge element in who gets to be pretty or who gets to be considered pretty. I've always just been really conscious of, for example, my older sister is really, really light skinned and she's just always been known as this absolutely, and she is, she's a beautiful, beautiful girl, but she was, she got away with the damnedest things. Mm. Like she could do no wrong. And she was a monster. Like she was a horrible person. <laughs> Shout, Shout out Vixen. Yeah, yeah, I love her. What, what's her name? Tanika. Tanika the monster. Nice to meet you. She was an awful person. But yeah, like I just always felt, and then the same thing with cousins. Like I just felt like my cute little light-skinned cousins got away with so much. And do you feel like you were more disciplined? I don't, but I feel like I have a cousin who is darker skinned and she feels like she was. Oh, so man. that's why I feel like I'm right in the middle. So ob I feel like I've objectively seen. I understand. We kind of are very close and right. I know that like, middle feeling. It's a, yeah, it's a weird place to be. It's like I'm not necessarily light and I'm not necessarily dark. So I feel like I've just objectively seen. You just seen. watched them right. argue. Or, like... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I feel like I've seen the way that kids who are considered cute or beautiful are allowed certain things or the way that they're allowed to navigate the world is totally different. Yeah, beauty standards are, uh, forget the FCC, yeah. they're fucked up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, especially and, black beauty standards. Like, it's all fucked up. And, and, and so that that is what, like, w was what the, the biggest pull uh, uh, against you was in high school? Um, mostly socioeconomic. Like, okay. kids at King were just, yeah, they were just like, the bougie black kids who knew that they were going to have a car when they turned 18 or I just couldn't relate to them in certain mm -hmm. ways. Um, I was Robert. There were still a couple of Robert Taylor buildings at that time. And so I was still like hanging out there. And I still mm -hmm. had my friends. And these were people who turned their noses up at that. And I just I hated King so much. I wanted to transfer so badly and um, I wasn't you, allowed to. Do you so. think you uh, were like able to get inside acts was that like distinction clear like a marker of you because i because i think um you speak in a way that is like distinct for what people associate with robert taylor Holmes. so so you kind of can speak the tongue that can like blend in with with the bougie sure. did, 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 did that yeah. give you some, some yeah. like insight i agree, into how, how I agree. That yeah that's something i'm really conscious of like i i know that i'm a person who's so proud and so eager to talk about growing up in the projects. Mm -hmm. And I can like jokingly call myself a hood rat because mm -hmm. when I go out in the world, white people and no one else interprets me or reads me as a hood rat. Right. You know what I mean? Right, right, right. So I can say those things in jest and be comfortable that because of the way that I can speak or maybe the way that I can write, mm -hmm. I don't have to be subjected to certain discriminations based on that, if that makes sense. Yeah, so it's like with that access still like demanding the ownership or the recognition of of that piece of who you are too yeah um, so when did sure. you uh when did you start you, you mentioned like you've been writing for a year but i feel like you probably wrote something before that like when did you start picking yeah up the pen and i'd always or the um, quill? yeah when i think of myself i think of myself as a reader so mm. like i've always been a really voracious reader and i always um i've gotten like 
really, really high test scores in reading. So I actually didn't graduate King because I, I just stopped going. Like hmm. I hated it so much and I just felt so out of place there and I wanted to be with my friends. So I actually used to skip class. So I would not go to class at King and I would go to class at High Park. <laughs> so like High Park Career Academy where all my friends went. And like the teachers did. It's like, whatever. The she doesn't even go here a moment. No, <laughs> they didn't. Like the security, so High Shout Park security was so janky. <laughs> I used to just walk in High Park like, oh, hey, like, you know, and then like I would either sit in a class with my friend or like hang out in the hallway. Like there's always other kids skipping class. Oh, so I would just so like funny. hang out <laughs> in High Park. School. But I think yeah. that's the first time I've ever heard that. Like I went yeah. to somebody else's I, I just went to High Park. The only life. other example I've ever heard of that, Bismarck Key used to go to different uh, high schools in Long Island I've and just that. go to their lunch periods <laughs> and yeah. just rap in their all of their respective lunch periods. But I, yeah. I heard when new media got really popping, people would like ditch school and go to the library, which is Yeah, awesome. I didn't like, even <laughs> I wasn't involved in that. That's yeah. amazing. So you managed to skip two classes at the same time. Basically, <laughs> basically. So I would, I mean, I would be at High Park, but I wasn't in any High Park classes. Like I was just, so I actually didn't graduate King. So um, I was class of 2008 and I didn't graduate because again, like I just didn't go to school. And actually the year after that, so my, at that, that was also the year that my grandmother died, 2008. And um, that was sort of the beginning of me trying to forge a relationship with my birth mom. And she was like, Okay, so you need to graduate high school. So when class started in the fall, I was expected to be like a fifth year senior. And I walked in there and I was just like, fuck this. <laughs> like, I'm not gonna do this. I'm gonna be a 19 year old senior. Like, I literally got to the outside of the door and was like, nah, like, I'm not doing this. So I actually, like, I went to, um, and people were just like, you have to graduate. But I was really ambivalent about school at that yeah. point because King had just been so such a bad experience for me. So I actually went to an alternative school for like six months, I want to say maybe a full term. And again, like if you've ever been to an alternative school, you know that that like, mm -hmm. yeah. nobody cares about the kids at an yeah. alternative school. And that was equally depressing. So I actually wound up leaving there as well. And eventually when I was like 19, 20, I think I took like the high school equivalency, like yeah. I got a GED so yeah. I could just go to college and yeah. yeah, I was just like not about school. But it's interesting all. that you you said up top that your passion for writing, or or, your, or at least your ability to like own it as your craft, came mm -hmm. from taking a class on it, right? So, yeah. So, so sure. how did that jump happen from you? Being yeah. Like, and we're gonna run out of time. Yeah, but okay. I just want to hear real so, quick how you came. From yeah, like I finally Kanye West to like let me go to like. <laughs> okay. Finally went back to school like Kanye last year. Pieces. Finally. <laughs> Yeah. So um, I go to Harold Washington now and I'm in like my last semester now right. and I'm going to go to UIC. Right. So yeah, I took my last, took my first creative writing class and was just like, oh, like this is what I should do and what I want to do. And it just made sense to me. You also, you told me this before, you also like have a book deal. Yeah. So um, I have an agent now. I'm signed to Zachary Schuster Harmsworth, which is also where Cheryl Strait is. Mm -hmm. And it just sounds like a book agent name. Yeah, yeah it's like Harms a nice, yeah, it's like a nice white man. <laughs> like there is mahogany in his name. Yeah, yeah. Like walls, um, mahogany. Not, so yeah. I'm working on my first. It's book. all right, man. <laughs> Thanks. Congratulations. That's Thank like you. super exciting. Yeah. So the book included, or overall, like kind of the last question is like, especially this 
this like time, like this last week or two, a month um, mm. in the country. Um, and, and you saying that like writing is going to be, it is your form of activism, mm-hmm. right? Uh, what is your vision or what is your like hope for your writing in the future as the like world is attempting to reshape itself or at least yeah. reconcile like um, some really violent contradictions that we have as a society? Um, my hope is that my writing is a way for someone to be able to breathe a little bit easier, mm-hmm. even if it's just me. I'm hoping True. that True. my writing that's, that's means the, the real work right something there. to somebody. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, before we get out of here, one, I just want to, uh, again, like, there's only so much we can capture in an hour. Go read uh, Jasmine's pieces. They're wonderful. They're an amazing Thank way you. to connect to this city, at least for me as an outsider. Like, the kind of understanding uh, that that came across in this hour of the way that the, the complicated, beautiful relationship to where you grew up, like mm-hmm. that's the kind of stuff that for out, coming folks coming in from the outside as transplants, trying to understand a place among all the other roles that your writing serves. Yes. That's one of the things it did. So, and Thank it does you. it in a way that's uh, honest and actually ends up challenging narratives that are really destructive. So thank yeah. you for doing what you do. Thank yeah, you. Much love um, to you. Thank you. Cool. Where can they, anywhere in particular, they should find your work? Yeah. Um, look at my Twitter. It's like the best Twitter name. Uh, <sighs> what is it? Tell the people. Jazz Money Record. Like Cash Money Record? Real quick, I think we have time. I'm not even going to set it up for you at all. I'm putting you right on the spot. If any decade you have to pick an R&B singer to start beef with, beef with an R&B <gasps> singer, go. This is like our favorite. All of thing. like that generation of like light skin whisperers, like <laughs> Christina Milian, okay. Maya, okay. All right. like all those girls who weren't vocalists, but somebody thought they were cute. So like, baby all hair of them. Yes, like the light skin, the baby hair, the baby hair brigade. <laughs> <laughs> Man, when that, when that reunion tour hits, that's about to be crazy. The baby, baby hair, hair brigade. brigade. Man, uh, thank y'all so much. Thank you so much for being here, Jasmine. Thank you. It was really a pleasure. We'll be back Same. next week. Um, any last? We we never end early, but any uh, any last things you want to throw in and add? Um, what uh, what are you about to do? Hey, we we can skip it. I I want to hold oh. a direction there. Yeah. Oh yeah, and we have a special oh, guest here. Uh, yeah. What book? Oh, look out for my book. (laughs) Real quick, we have another Alexis. Shout out to Alexis. What's up? And Alexis Alexis is a listener to the podcast who put Jasmine onto it as a listener. Yeah, she did. So shout Shout out out to Alexis. You're so cool. (laughs) Thank you all so much for tuning in. We'll be back next week with another strong young voice from Chicago and beyond. Much love to the people.